Citizen Podcast. Do you want a drink or something? Gonna, yes. Not I'm like a tequila drink. Yo, that's actually good. Yeah. <laughs> that's perfect for like wet my whistle. Should we do that? I think so. All right, hold. Are you ready? Put the chocolate so I can get yeah, it without. Or eat the, the chocolate without the. You can keep eating the chocolate. Yeah, just so. I'm not going to deny you chocolate in this interview. Hi, my name is Carrie Kelly, and welcome to another episode of Citizen Podcast, where we are exploring a citizenship of solidarity and how we show up for each other. We're joined today by Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams acclaimed author and Zen master as we talk about holding the complexity of who we are in America and why meditation is not enough. I wish I could share the full unedited version of this interview because like all of my conversations with Angel, it was deep. And inevitably with her, I have some major realization or breakthrough. Now that may sound dramatic, but once you start listening, you'll know what I mean. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, born and raised in New York, is an ordained Zen priest and sensei. She's the acclaimed author of Radical Dharma and Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. And that is the perfect title to describe her. She is a force of nature. When I first met Angel, what resonated most for me was that she was very much an off-the-cushion meditator, actively engaging in the world in whatever way was most needed. And that was my jam with yoga and being off the mat and into the world. Angel was one of the first people in contemplative practice to integrate racial justice as an essential component to understanding and engaging in our liberation. And that perspective has really shaped my work since before Citizen Well even existed. She's made a huge impact on my own journey of waking up to whiteness by holding my dignity and humanity as most sacred. Not because I did everything right. I didn't, in fact. But no matter where I was in my learning or what messed up thing I said or did, which was often, she never ceased to love me or believe in me. And it taught me about the role of authentic relationship in anti-racism work. I'm often challenged by saying the politically correct thing or knowing the latest ally terminology. It's almost become like ally theater, more performance than purpose. But in this episode, you'll hear Angel debunk what she calls so-called allyship and really call us up to the deeper and often harder, more nebulous and certainly risky practice of just being in relationship with one another. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because we must do it. In her book, Radical Dharma, Angel writes, In truth, we have to integrate our wounds into our understanding of who we are and what we are really capable of so that we can be whole human beings. Only from there can we begin the process of healing the brokenness, the brokenheartedness within ourselves that is the foundation for beginning to heal that in our larger society. Whoa. And so once again, Angel totally turns my world upside down and challenges me to go beyond what is politically correct or socially acceptable and do this simple and radical thing of practicing justice and being in relationship with one another. All right. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We're here with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who has a very 
substantial Wikipedia page. <laughs> She's been called the most vocal and most intriguing African-American Buddhist in America. We like to call her our favorite troublemaker and disruptor. <laughs> She's a dear friend and teacher, and we are so grateful to have you here with us. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to dive right in because you are one of those people that I go to to make sense of this moment in America. And one of the things that I love about you, and, I, and really I've learned about you, is your capacity to hold this moment with both complexity and compassion simultaneously. And I think it's often easy for us to default to the either or, the right or wrong, the binary, the blaming. But you, you really always bring a much more nuanced and multidimensional perspective to whatever issue we're contemplating, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's the Me Too movement. And so I want to ask you about this quote that you sent me that was recently in the New York Times written by Frank Bruni. And he said, there's a pattern of turning righteous causes into indiscriminate attacks, painting with a destructively broad brush and branding certain actors irredeemable, which doesn't leave them any room or much motivation for redemption. So what role does redemption and restorative justice play in a moment like this? I think not just in a moment like this, I think for the sake of humanity, that the, that the very fundamental underlying glue of our humanity is redemption. And that people are aware that redemption is possible is, I think, the difference between being able to be human and becoming potentially becoming a monster. Mm-hmm. And we have structured society in a way in which we are too often, too quick to try to make people irredeemable monsters. And I understand and believe in and lean into justice. So I'm not opposing justice. And simultaneously, I think that that is intentional, that this idea that we have, that we can decide a, a clear cut, right and wrong, good and bad, belonging, not belonging, mm-hmm. is exactly the mental construct that allows patriarchy to continue, I want to say under-challenged. Mm-hmm. It allows the colonialist mindset that founded this country to continue to wind its way through all of the uh, systems and structures that we have. And that is to say that what we can do is we can produce things in a human being, the society, the culture, the norms, what is um, expressed in the culture through an individual can be blamed and burdened upon solely the individual, but the culture remains unscathed. Uh. It releases the culture the respon- from any kind of responsibility or accountability for 
what it is we produce in our society, what it is that our culture produces, what it is our norms, what it is the unspoken things, not just the things that are said, which we have a set of behavior codes. For instance, in Me Too, we have a set of behavior codes where we know, quote unquote, that this is wrong. And yet clearly we watch television, we watch movies, none of this is new. Right. But it has been the unspoken cultural norms, the things that have been accepted that are part of patriarchy, that are part of classism, that are part of how it is that we understand and, and sexism and misogyny and how it is we understand that boys will be boys, men will be men, and women have to just bear it. When we point someone out and we use this broad brush that Bruni talks about and we just wipe it over an individual and we single them out, we absolve the culture that allowed that behavior to manifest in the society. And no one in society is manifesting anything that the culture is not permitting them to manifest and in fact feeding. Right, it's mutual. How do we do that? Like, how do we be the disruptors that we need to be in this particular moment, speaking truth to power, while simultaneously holding this commitment to um, understanding the humanity of who we are at the same time? Mm -hmm. What does that look like in practice? Yeah, I think that what you said, the humanity of who we are, and that's actually where we begin, because often what we're focused on is how do we, and the question is usually phrased of like, how do we focus or keep the humanity of the other? And where we begin is actually how do we focus on our humanity and whether we our are- Our collective. Our individual humanity. It is actually our relationship and the more- nuanced and complex a relationship we have with our individual humanity, the more we are able to uh, manifest a complex and nuanced relationship with the humanity of the so-called other. Uh, we understand our failings. We understand the ways that we can misstep. We understand our ignorances. We understand the ways that we can do things that we absolutely know that we have no business doing. And when we're in a good relationship with that, with the comp full complexity of what it means to be human, learning about where it comes from, understanding that there is a, a power behind our thoughts and certainly there is impact behind our behaviors, that we can hold then the humanity of the so-called offender in equal measure with the offense so that what we're doing is, as the saying goes, calling people in. And I like to think of the story uh, about an African tribe in which the way in they dealt with someone that did something wrong was to actually bring the person into the circle that the whole tribe would gather and the person would be called into the circle and reminded of all of the good things about them. Yeah. They're told by the, by the uh, community, by the tribe, this is who you have been. This is who you truly are. And we're reminded of our highest calling, the full expression of our humanity, rather than uh, cast aside and left into a place in which all we are left with is the behavior that came through that is a manifestation of our confusion about our culture, about our society, about ourselves. And what I've heard you talk about and what I've learned from you is when we talk about self-care, when we're talking about the individual, it's really with a capital S, right. right? And this idea, I think, reinforced by our culture that the self is separate from other and all mm -hmm. um, is really false. 
Yeah, not only is it false, it's convenient to allow those systems of domination to continue. Those systems get to go scot-free. They can actually serve to protect the very same individuals that are later understood as offenders. You can uh, trace something like that back to Hitler, where that person was being uh, was protected benefiting. and mm -hmm. the society thought it was benefiting. And then when it is no longer suits the society, we cast the uh, responsibility and accountability for the behavior and put the burden entirely on the individual. This is a very, very powerful uh, function of white supremacy. It's very powerful in, in that it allows people to both be kept and held and protected. Mm -hmm. But when that person that, and, and their behavior is going to sink the su white supremacy ship, then they are cast out alone. And the white supremacy ship continues to go on its way unaddressed. The patriarchy ship continues to go on its way. It's allowed to continue unscathed because we have shifted the burden solely to the individual. And that's what you're really talking about with the, the Me Too movement, this idea of finger pointing um, and ostracizing the individual without taking responsibility for the whole structure that's really upholding that culture. That's right. And that's not to uh, take anything away from the person that has been victimized or perpetrated against in the particular act and behavior. We're talking about a meta conversation about how it is that we as members of a functioning society, then in our desire to have some kind of justice in a time in which there feels so much that is unjust, right. we um, have turned to this behavior of finger pointing and blaming. And actually what we're doing is we're, we're advancing the very same things that we think that we have an intention to disrupt. We're advancing the tenets of patriarchy. We're advancing the tenets, the machinations of white supremacy. We're advancing the mentality of individualism over collective responsibility. We do it under some notion of a progressive ideal and the notion of, of justice, but we are actually advancing. And that's what's so amazing, actually, about white supremacy, about patriarchy, about dominance, about misogyny, about all of these forms of oppression is that they are, have been skillfully designed to cast individuals off when they need to so that they can continue and not be held accountable as an overarching structure, an overarching construct. So let's talk about like how, how we embody that disruption in a way that includes both a resistance mm -hmm. and like a, a resilience, a commitment to humanity. And I've heard you call this the back of the bus moment of this time. What do you mean by that? I think that we have come to a place in our you know, nation's national memory where people, most people in the light of day uh, understand that the point at which Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus was a point that changed the country for the better. And of course, there's a lot of other history that's around that that created the context for that moment, but that it changed the country for the better. And there were some people that didn't understand what was happening and didn't know the right place to be. And so they resisted. They resisted the Negroes riding the bus. They resisted the 
black folks that wanted to be able to ride the bus. They resisted the people that were then boycotting the bus. They resisted the people that crossed the bridge. They resisted the people that participated in all of the marches, all of the forms of resistance, all of the sit-ins. And those people would probably, at this point, most of them would probably regret that decision at this point and hopefully absolves themselves at, at this moment of like, well, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I only knew what I was brought up with, what I was raised with. I was, the, I was doing the best that I could. I was doing the best that I could with what I had. But we are now at a, such a moment in which we are looking at a pivotal point in our nation's history where we can take a turn towards a very different America. And the question is, what side of that conversation are we going to be on? Are we going to sit on the sidelines? I'm not saying that you on the, you, the people that were saying like, oh, I'm going to do something horrible, or oh, I'm going to do something terrible to black people. I'm going to bash them. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the people that sat and did nothing. Mm -hmm. What moment? Where, where are they going to be in this moment? And I even think about the culture of allyship. And one of the things that I've learned in being in relationship with you is that it's not about what you do, but how you are in mm -hmm. authentic relationship with mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. That is really the breakthrough mm -hmm. to actually moving our culture forward, um, igniting a new story. Um, yeah, I want to call it so-called allyship because I even think that the notion that uh, someone is an ally and that they're not implicated. Mm -hmm. right. And somehow that they're not implicated as well, that they're not implicated in the harm, that they're not implicated in the destruction, that they're not implicated in the loss of relationship to one's perspective on humanity um, is a destructive way of thinking that there is some poor somebody or something that needs our help and we should right. ally with them. So right. I want to just call but and I understand the term. Yeah. So I'll just call it so-called allyship. And the so-called allyship has ended up in a place in which there's a kind of uh, very much part of the capitalist mentality, a set of checklists of things I can check off That's and right. it will tell me whether or not I have met the mark or met the measure of being whatever it is I'm trying to attain. And that framework, that way of thinking about our lives and about how it is that we relate to things leaves us empty. And it leaves us out of relation because it leaves us out of relationship. Right. And so allyship is not possible without relationship. It's not a set of behaviors, as you said. It's not uh, how much you wrote out of your checkbook, though I'm not opposed to people writing things out of your checkbook. But if people want to be in true relationship and really show up on the line with people that are overt victims of oppression, then what they have to risk more than anything is their... Vulnerability right. is the uh, having willingness to be, see someone and to that is different from them in all of these kinds of ways, economically, uh, in terms of access to resources, skin color, religious, the level of persecution that they undergo, 
gender, gender, how people show up in the in their bodies and the way in which they're responded to and on the basis of that. We have to allow ourselves to truly see those people for who they are. The only way we can do that is to allow ourselves to be seen. Yeah. And I hear you also saying something around, like, I mean, it goes back to, like, really looking inward mm -hmm. and knowing the ways in which we are responsible and we are participating in upholding that system and benefiting from that system um, so that we can like truly own that as a part of being in relationship. Yeah, it's not just also how we're participating, it's how we are actually, when I say implicated, I mean how we are wounded, right? And so how the person in the So position, not just implicated in, as... As in, yeah, so we are, there's a lot of focus on like, oh, like I'm a part of this, my family has been a part of this and uh, you know, particularly in, in the forms of like white supremacy and whiteness itself is there's a focus on the, the fact that white people or men or whoever it is in a particular dominant position in, in, in uh, the, the social strata has perpetrated something or is implicated in, per, in perpetrating something. I'm saying that there's something in terms of the relationship and being willing to look deeply at how it is that you are being wounded by it. Yeah. And oppressed. And oppressed by it. And that that is actually the more significant probing that needs to happen because we can all go and check off the ways in which we have perpetrated something in some form. But can we look at the ways in which we are wounded and not reify our dominance by suggesting that we are not somehow hurt by it as well. Mm -hmm. It actually reifies our position of dominance, our position of control, our position of being better than. When we're immune to when it. When we are immune to it and we have language that suggests that we're immune to it, when we perform in such a way that suggests that we are immune to it and what we can do is we can heal it, we can try to fix it, we can try to bandage it, but that we ourselves are not bleeding. And it goes back to the complexity that you were talking about before, that we are both the oppressed and the oppressor. That's right. I want to give a shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. Citizen Podcast is reimagining citizenship for all of us. Not the kind that requires documents and papers, but an everyday practice of how we take care of each other and the whole of society. We're daring to ask hard questions about who we are and who we are to one another and what's possible when we show up for the well-being of the whole. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. And what we love about this platform is that it's mutual. It's about supporting one another. By joining this community, you get lots of good stuff from us, like practice tools and meditation, community forums that inspire conversation, and lifestyle content that you can trust. And not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can opt in for as little as $1 per month or $5 or $10 and so on. And think of it this way, for the equivalent of one coffee per month or one yoga class or one dinner, you get to be a part of something bigger, a call to action to become better citizens for humanity. So check us out on patreon.com forward slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L 
and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. So you talk about a lot of this in the book, Radical Dharma. And I want to I wanna name a couple things that people have said about this book. They've said, the best thing I've heard on our current situation in a Buddhist context. They've said, urgent reading, <laughs> exclamation point. They've said, it's like coming home for the first time. They've said, it's life changing. Mm -hmm. Those are big statements mm -hmm. um, about a book that I know changed my life. And so I want to know, how did writing this book, how did sharing this book change your life, change you? Uh, one of the one of the quotes, it was actually the title of an article that was said about Radical Dharma was a book made for these times. Mm. And that's how it affected me, is that it affirmed what I feel like I have honed in my life, in my practice, in my ability to hear, my ability to discern, like what's real, what's not real in what I'm hearing, to actually have been very, very clear that this book had to happen and that it had to happen when it did. And so not only was Radical Dharma made for these times, I was made for these times. Mm -hmm. And it affirmed that for me. The book affirms and reflects back to me and people's response to the book reflects back to me the ways in which the time that I've put into my life, to my self-examination, to my care, to working through my wounds, to being in my own relationship, to healing and illness and the challenge of being, of, of having an illness and, and all of the things, my own conf confrontation with white supremacy, my confrontation with patriarchy, my confrontation with you know, being a part of a tradition that is a, you know, borrowed from Zen and uh, from Japan and, and, and its patriarchy and all of that and all, all of the complexity that I've um, ingested those things and integrated them so that I'm not just puppeting some set of words that say, this is who we should be as Buddhists, or this is who we should be as Black people, or this is who we should be as activists, or this is who we should be as liberation theorists, but that I'm living it, and that I'm speaking it. And I'm speaking it not from a set of texts, but from a, a knowing. And that kind of affirmation, I think, too, too few of us get it in our lives. Um, and, and, and have the you know, great opportunity of having that out in the world and to have people say something to you about it and reflect it back to you all the time. You know, I'll tell you, when, when my first book came out, Being Black, I, I always say that being black is like my bastard child. Uh, I, I did a book that I thought it was time for. Uh, that was the year 2000. I thought people of color were gonna be interested in Buddhism and they were and that they needed an invitation, they needed an explicit invitation, and the degree of rejection that I was confronted with in terms of the Buddhist community, in terms of the, the white bookstore-owning community, in terms of uh, even media, in, in, in media opportunities, was crushing. First of all, I was much younger. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I was 30, so you know, we'd get more easily crushed. Um, but it was also, I was confronted with the distinction between what people said about what it meant to be Buddhist or yogis or practitioners or spiritual and, and who they really were and how they could really show up. And so I just wanted to get away from being black for the longest time. And not only has radical dharma been something that I can fully own, it's actually let me fully reclaim being black as well. You've said meditation is not enough. Is mm. that true? Yeah, absolutely. It's a sufficient and, and uh, it's necessary and insufficient is what I would say. And I'm not one of the people that has a traditional role in the spiritual tradition as Zen, as Buddhist, that is against the mindfulness movement. I think it's has its problems and it has challenges that anything else, anything that has been popularized and commodified in the society is going to have and are going to run into. But simultaneously, I think that the benefits will far outweigh the potential damage. And in many ways, we're, you know, making much ado about nothing. And what really needs to happen is that we need to be in uh, mindfulness 3.0 is what I say. <laughs> that uh, meditation simply can't keep up with the level of destruction that we are at as a, as a society, as a culture, as a people. Well, and, and the meditation, the spiritual, the yoga community has also all been indoctrinated in many ways mm -hmm. within these systems of power and oppression. That's right. And so the meditation, uh, the way in which when I say the meditation, I don't mean the particular techniques. I'm talking about the theory of being a meditator, the way in which we are holding the idea of what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be Buddhist, what it means to be yogis, all of these things is actually being held and it's held captive inside of all of these structures of power and oppression so that it's keeping people from actually doing the deeper work of looking at themselves in the context of a larger society. So there's a lot of navel-gazing going on, or, you know, I don't know what, what how, how yogis would call it, the, that, the form of navel-gazing, right? We're like uh, in tree too long or something like that. But we are, um, uh, we are not called to turn that lens of attention, of insight, and all of the potential wisdom onto the collective. And that's because it's not convenient to do so. And that's because the way in which we've been sold and pack, have had meditation packaged to us does not invite us into the greatest potential for liberation, which is to be in relationship with our bodies, which is to be in relationship, therefore, with our truth. But if you limit the truth to something that's somehow outside of your body and outside of your mm -hmm. uh, full uh, technicolor reality, then you're going to end up actually perpetuating the same harm that you have already perpetuated and just doing it in a smoother voiced way. <laughs> it sounds good, it looks good, That's right. but it ain't the real thing. That's exactly right. I've heard you defined intersectionality as something that you've embodied, like that you had a specific lens on intersectionality. I would love for you to, <laughs> to share that. Well, with all due respect to Kimberly Crenshaw, I would never say that I uh, define intersectionality. Yeah, it's not an Al Gore yeah. thing of you founded the internet. Yeah, I think that I um, exist in an intersectional reality. And 
as a result, the complexities that you spoke about my holding are, are true and natural to my willingness to hold the complexities of what it means to live at the intersection of race, uh, you know, mixed heritages in, in my own background, to live at the intersection of class. I grew up not with money, uh, with, you know, one of my parents didn't finish high school, and yet I lived in Tribeca, New York, which is one of the wealthiest places in New York that you can live, and I lived amongst people that had a, a, an enormous amount of access, and so I had insight into that possibility. I've lived on both coasts, and there's many ways. Um, I've, I'm queer, uh, and I've sort of done all of the things of you know exploring gender spectrum for myself, and so I live in those ways. I'm a, a black woman uh, that's trained inside of a ridiculously patriarchal uh, Japanese tradition that is known for its machismo, that is known for its rigor, that is known in many ways for its patriarchy and for the ways in which it has actually caused harm, uh, has caused uh, you know conflict and confusion in terms of like sexual molestation and misogyny and those kinds of things. So I'm living inside of, and, and yet I have found enormous uh, peace in, in that tradition. And I also don't operate primarily inside the tradition. I break free of it and do me. Well, and you understand intersectionality in a way that I can't. And when I think about who needs to be leading in these times, mm. it's people who understand, who have an embodied understanding of that kind of multidimensional complexity that you're talking about, who can really help us navigate mm -hmm. um, that in our culture, in politics, um, in, in social situations. You know, I, when I think about intersectionality and the place that I occupy, and I think really truly a lot of black women occupy, and I want to go into even further and say like black queer women yeah. occupy, is, is exactly this space of kind of like the wayfarer that's the person that is like um, creates or admits passage from one land to another in terms of the different locations in our society. Because black women by nature have relationship with white women. They have relationships with white men. They have relationships with black men. In many ways, they are a portal to the spectrum of society. The, and that relationship, for instance, to white men had to do with white folks having black women bring up their children. And so you have black women that could love white men as if they were their own children and then be separated from them. And so we still hold that sense of love and compassion and complexity. And to be, we can see the wounding of patriarchy in white men in the same way that we can see the wounding of patriarchy in black men. And so we're kind of this uh, wayfaring station. And if you're queer on top of it, then also the uh, finite lines of gender start to get blurred and gender expression and how one shows up in the world get, gets blurred. So I think that I'm, I'm embodying something that is true and that in many ways we're seeing and it's uh, similar for many indigenous people, I think as well. I've heard you talk about the fundamental human value of basic goodness mm. and the idea that deep down our nature is good, our true nature is good, despite all of the ways in which we might be acting out other things. And I also know you to believe that we can do better. <laughs> and so how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile this knowing that we are doing the best that we can and deep down 
And there are a lot of difficult people <laughs> that we are <laughs> dealing with these days in our culture and in our leadership. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile the idea that they too, at the core, are good and uphold a, a vision that we can all do better by ourselves and for one another? I think the idea and the, the term basic goodness was really popularized by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher that um, headed up the Shambhala tradition in Buddhism and really gave us a kind of um, very straightforward language, right? So basically good. I think that basic goodness does not suggest that people cannot be painfully flawed and corrupted by the uh, scourge of domination and the mentality that comes with and that advances a position of seeking after domination over others. And so I don't have to take away the fact that someone has basic, has basic goodness, which is different than saying that someone is basically good. Mm -hmm. It is to say that they have basic goodness, that it sits at the seat of their very expression as a human being, that that is actually the undergirding of what it means to be human. But it doesn't suggest that everything that they do is in alignment with what it is that they have access to. They possess it. There's a term we they possess, which is what Trungpa Rinpoche was, was playing on, is that we all possess Buddha nature. Not to say that we're all acting out of Buddha nature, but that we possess it. So it's a little bit different to say that people are doing the best they can than it is to say that when we say well, they, but they, they can do better. In other words, in some ways, if we say we're doing the best we can, we make that finite, right? is to suggest like, well, that's what they've got and they're not gonna be able to do any better. When we say that people have basic goodness, we're right away leaving the door open to, and we can, we can expect more from them, right? I also think that people are, uh, can be flawed in a way that in this lifetime is beyond repair, not redemption, but it is, it is beyond repair. We have psychosis, we have uh, mental challenges, uh, that are brought on by these systems of oppression and domination that so... And reinforced. And reinforced. Over and, and, over and it again. has so fried people's brains and hearts that I think it is very difficult for the deep woundedness and, and really the atrophying of their own relationship to their humanity, that they're incapable of seeing it and relating it to it in others, or they're increasingly incapable of seeing it and relating it to others that do not reflect them back to themselves. And so it's not that they don't love and they can't love and they can't relate, but they can only relate to things that actually are reflecting back. And this is a um, absurdly narcissistic uh, state of being. And going back to our original conversation, it's not created out of nowhere. It doesn't just come with that person. It's by it, design. It, it is, it's, by, it's by design, it's created in the society. We didn't get what we have right now in our administration by accident. Um, it's by design. It's a plan. Uh, even if it was a surprise, it was a plan. It's what is called for. But it's called for both from our deepest, darkest, 
most unaddressed places of this nation, of this culture, of this society, but it's also called for from our most powerful and hopeful places in this nation, in the people of the nation and who we are, that we are calling ourselves into a place in which we must confront it, that we're calling ourselves into a place in which we have to confront the things that have gone unanswered, unaddressed, unconscious for us for so long that it's become untenable. So we have to call up the most monstrous, most demonic things that we can imagine and kind of hold inside of our, uh, what's possible in our society in order for us to uh, get serious. And, and I think that that's what's happened for us. So in many ways, I think we could look at the administration or we could look at what's happening and say, oh, there's an example of how off we are and how off how we can low get we can go from away from basic goodness but in fact part of what's happening is that we are calling it forth because we're as we do in our own personal lives we get tired of ourselves we're like enough of this enough of the thing that we keep adoring enough of the thing that keeps going unaddressed and we call forth a kind of explosive situation that f forces us to confront it so i think basic goodness is in play and it gives us hope. And it gives us hope. Okay, there are so many angelisms. <laughs> okay. That's what we call them behind your back. <laughs> that I want to talk to you about. That's to me. <laughs> More than we have time for. So I'm going to say a few of them. And I just want you to respond with the first thing that comes to you, that comes to mind. Okay. It's not about love after all. We have to express that love. We have to show up. It's not about being, uh, having a checklist. It is showing up for justice. Radical. Complete. Whole. New America. Uh, an America that doesn't live any longer and chooses not to live in the trauma of the past, but to embrace the context that we're in and to imagine ourselves from where we are now going forward rather than what we used to be, what we thought we could be, what we would like to be. Well-being essential uh, for everyone, being well, choosing that for who we are and how we are in our lives and knowing that it's not possible for us as individuals unless it's possible for everyone. Life hacks. Oh, <laughs> my favorite. Uh, life hacks is like really just making it work for you and figuring out what it is, having a mindset that says, I'm going to make my life work for me and whatever I have to tinker, grab, learn about in order to make that happen, I'm going to do it. What's one of your life hacks? Uh, naps. <laughs> uh, I, I, life hack is probably the, the best life hack that there is, is to, is to take a nap, is to be a grown person and take a nap. I thought you would have said coffee. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's my big life hack. I love coffee, but it's not a life hack for me. It is, it is a love. It's a love affair. It is a love affair. We are reimagining a citizenship where everyone belongs. And that calls us to fight for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Among them, 800,000 young people are living in fear because of the DACA crisis. An attack on immigrants is an attack on all of us. We need to fight to keep our families together and ensure the well-being of everyone. 
Please make it a practice of your citizenship to demand permanent protection, dignity, and respect for our undocumented communities. You can learn more about how to engage at fairimmigration.org and unitedwedream.org. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to get radical. Radical in the way that Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams talks about. Far-reaching and thorough. It calls us to go beyond, to get radical now, in our practice, in our relationships, in our action, and in our votes. You can start with her book, Radical Dharma, available on Amazon, and check out her schedule at angelkyotowilliams.com. Thanks for being here today. Special thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd-sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. 